You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Everyone, welcome to Cyberwire X, a series of specials where we highlight important security topics affecting security professionals worldwide. I'm Rick Howard, N2K's Chief Security Officer and the Cyberwire's Chief Analyst and Senior Fellow. Today, Dave Bittner, the senior producer and host of many of the Cyberwire's podcasts, will be joining me at the Cyberwire's hash table to discuss post infection remediation or PIR. After the break, you'll first hear my conversation with Rick Doughton, the CISO for Healthcare Enterprises and Centene. And then Dave will talk with Trevor Hilligas, the Director of Security Research at SpyCloud, the sponsor of this show. Come right back. SpyCloud disrupts cybercrime by telling you what criminals know about your business and your customer. So you can take action on exposed authentication data to prevent ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With knowledge of the specific darknet data criminals have in hand, like credentials, cookies, and PII, siphon from malware-infected devices accessing your network and applications, security teams have better visibility into the expanding attack surface that puts their organization at risk from cyber attacks and can respond quickly with SpyCloud's automated solutions. Visit spycloud.com slash cyberwire to view SpyCloud's malware readiness and defense report, a benchmark survey of global security practitioners on how they combat InfoStealer malware and are planning for gaps in their post-infection remediation that leave the door open for ransomware attacks. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. And we thank SpyCloud for sponsoring our show. Incident response has been around as a concept since the late 1980s when it practically sprang out of whole cloth from Dr. Clifford Stoll when he published his communication of the ACM journal article called Stalking the Wily Hacker in 1988 and his subsequent cybersecurity canon hall of fame book, The Cuckoo's Egg, Tracking the Spy Through the Maze of Computer Espionage in 1989. While tracking East German hacker mercenaries hired by the Russian government, to break into U.S. academic systems in order to compromise U.S. government systems because, let's face it, back then, there really wasn't anything close to cybersecurity. The Internet was mostly a collection of cans tied together by strings. Dr. Stoll invented incident response, and for the most part, the practice hasn't really changed much in terms of the big picture. To get some color on that, I reached out to Rick Doden, an old friend of mine, a regular here at the CyberWire hash table, and, fun fact, has been a judge multiple times at the American Pie Council's annual National Pie Championships. Who knew? But he's also the CISO for Healthcare Enterprises and Centene, a Fortune 500 company. And in his early days, he managed a commercial penetration and incident response team. So I started out asking him what it was like in those early days after Dr. Stoll invented the idea. Yeah, I originally ran ethical hacking teams in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And then we realized that we needed to respond to incidents that our customers had. And so we put together 
one of the first forensics retainers <clears throat> on being able to do that. I mean, obviously, we weren't the first, but our peers at 2000, 2001, all were doing the same thing. It's a niche thing. Not a lot of people do this. And even in the executive group, you know, very few CISOs came up through the incident response you and I have talked about over, you know, the last decade that, you know, the, the defense industrial base, this intelligence response was a very common thing that was not in other industries outside of DC. And so, you know, we had to educate folks in, you know, 10, 13 years ago in other industries, including the financial industry about, hey, don't just like what happened, how did it happen, make it stop, make sure it doesn't happen again. There's a whole bunch of little things in between that we want to learn from and do to, you know, enrich that. In cybersecurity, you know, I always say that a pen tester and an incident responder are two sides of the same coin. And so we found the, answer, the, the pen testers made really good incident responders because they're digging through and looking for things to be able to say what happened, how did it happen. That's a really interesting insight because as a pen tester, it's more offensive oriented. So you have that perspective. But if, then if you're going to turn around to be an incident responder, you know how the offensive guy's team did it. And so you're looking for things, right, uh, on the defensive side that you can shore up. I, I had not really put that together. And you would think I would have done that by now. <laughs> well, it's also the personality of being able to thrive in chaos, failing quickly, doing multiple things at once. These are things that both sides do really well, as opposed to like a pure play forensics person who is very single-threaded, you know, doing things very meticulously for maintaining chain of custody you know, are, are much slower in their process and don't want to fail because I got to get this image correct because I only have one shot at it. And so the forensics piece of the actual acquisition is very different, but into response is exactly as described. It's the opposite of pen testing. Well, and there's all kinds of phases to incident response too, right? Besides just uh, stopping the pain, okay, there are lots of things you have to do inside the, inside the company in terms of managing crisis and in, in deciding if it's serious and deciding if it's not, how far you need to escalate it up the company, doing a public announcement. And uh, we're not even talking about all that. We're really just in this discussion, we're just talking about the technical things that you need to get done. And I was, I was really intrigued with something you said um, we were discussing this before we came on the air, Rick, that, um, you know, most small, medium-sized organizations don't have the resources to do a full-out incident response uh, action plan. Most people just want to stop the pain and, you know, get them out. Yeah, I say all the time is, remember, there's the Fortune 500 and 5 million other companies. You know? <laughs> so it's a point zero 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 one percent have resources, money, and people. And most don't. When I was a virtual CISO for five years, that thing that I found most lacking in all my customers around the world is no incident response program. You know, they had boxes that were lighting up when things happened. They had things that were supposed to protection detections. But if something happened, A, they weren't alerted, and B, they didn't know what to do because there was no plan and there were no people. So I think that's the thing that the most organizations don't have that. They just expect the technology to protect them and detect if something's wrong and tell them what to do about it and not this whole formulaic thing that you described of there's communication, there's, there's you know, maybe legal involved, there's you know, people involved, there's data protection and privacy things involved, there's business uh, resiliency things involved, that it's not just a what happened and you know, make it stop. 
or even for startups, small and medium-sized companies, stop the pain, yes, 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 all that and more. But there might be some things you want to do after it's all over. And they're called post-infection remediation, which is a fancy name, or for things you need to do after the pain has stopped and you're trying to recover from all this. And one of them was remove the malware if possible. I wonder if you could talk about that because that seems to be a problem, not even for small companies, but for, I don't know, even Fortune 500 companies. They seem, that malware seems to find its home somewhere that no one has located before. Yeah, I mean, in the last 10 years, we've had much more persistent adversaries who want to maintain this persistence. And so it's not just a, here's a file that's known to be bad and your antivirus catches it and and quarantines it. But it is a multi, sometimes multi-stage process. There might be a PDF that is completely benign until you open it and it launches an executable, which then installs some registry entries to put some hooks in, opens up a listener for a command and control channel, and then, you know, goes and tries to mail itself or propagate itself across the domain to other systems. And so when you find that this one patient has infected and you say, oh, okay, I delete this, you know, badware.exe, but I didn't delete the PDF from which it was spawned and I didn't know it and it entered you know, four registry entries, and I didn't know it opened a list, opened a port as a listener, and I didn't know that it also tried to propagate itself. So that's why I think it's prudent to say, if possible. That's one of the things that the early, before EDR was an EDR, you know, there was, um, I guess Carbon Black still exists, but the very first iteration of Carbon Black, I used to love that because it would give me this whole life cycle of this is the PDF, this is what was launched, this was created, this is the things, and I can use that as a as a recipe to take all of that out at one time and then search across all my other devices to has anything, is this registry entry anywhere else? Is this listener, this port open any, that shouldn't be anywhere else? Is this executable or PDF open anywhere else? The example I always go to for these kinds of discussions is the OPM breach from a number of years ago. All right. Uh, the IT staff didn't even notice that the Chinese were in there networks for a year. But when they finally noticed, they assumed they were in that one spot where they noticed the effort, right? They didn't understand that it was rampant through their organization. And then when they finally brought in a third-party contractor who did the analysis and found it all and got rid of almost everything, they missed one version of it that ran on a, you know, a remote Linux box. And so it was still inside their network. So What's the advice for do you give to um, these kind of small, medium companies who don't have the resources to track that kind of thing down? Right. You have to hire help. I mean, unless you have a good, re- good person. Now, you also have the advantage that it's a small inf- footprint. You know, 99.9% of organizations in the U.S., as you kind of point out, are less than 500 people. They're small footprints. They're also today mostly work from home, so you're not on this broadcast domain that it's easier to traverse because everyone's somewhere else, particularly in these smaller companies that are completely you know, cloud native. But that's a very common thing to miss that in that description I just said that, oh, and one of those actions was who are the domain admins and let me go to domain controller, let me pass the hash and get the admin password, create my own backdoor, my own domain admin on the domain that nobody even noticed. And maintain persistence that way. So I clean up everything, but they already have a backdoor because they have a domain account sitting there. So very, very common. So all of the 
instant responders are kind of trained now to be very, very comprehensive. But back to your question, what do small companies do? You hire people who do this for a living. You know, that's one of the advice I've, I've given people before was, you know, a virtual CISO is kind of like having outside counsel. A small company can't have, you know, pay for an inside general counsel. So they have them outside. And it's the same kind of thing with security. Well, I mean, there's a whole list of things you probably could do, but I, I agree with you, Rick, especially if you're a small to medium-sized company. Um, maybe you might purchase insurance so that you can pay for this kind of thing when it happens. Maybe that's the way you do it, or just bite the bullet when it does happen, just to make sure that you can be safe going forward. You did this for a long time. What was the go-to move after you guys remediated the initial problem? What did you tell your clients to do most of the time? Well, learn from this. You know, because usually when we went in and fixed something, it was, we found a whole bunch of other things. Like, you know, this happened because this wasn't turned on, or you realize you have a different version of XYZ across all this, and you know you don't have this on all these devices. So it's the learning what to do to improve it to make sure it doesn't happen again in the short term is, you know, here's all this stuff as an opportunity because we just had this event, you now have the attention to maybe get some money to fix the things that you've probably been asking for forever, but now it's been realized. Well, good stuff, Rick. Thanks for coming on and explaining this. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Next up is Dave Bittner's conversation with Trevor Hilligas, the Director of Security Research at SpyCloud, our show's sponsor. So today we are talking about info stealers. Can you give us a little bit of the the background and uh, I don't know the lay of the land and history of what brought us to where we are today when it comes to info stealers? Oh boy, how much time do you have? <laughs> there's there's been a lot. Yeah. So info stealers as a type of malware are not new. Um, they've been around for I think we're coming on a decade ish. Depends on you know what you count as I guess patient zero. You know, info stealers, I, I like to joke, folks in security, we're, we're uh, I guess I'll speak for myself, unimaginative in our naming conventions. So, you know, info stealers are pretty descriptive. Um, but we're basically talking about a type of malware whose entire purpose of existing is to steal information from an infected host, right? So generally speaking, and this has changed depending on when you look at it in, in time, generally speaking, non-persistent malware. So, you know, stealthy, delivered to a host, uh, executed, performs its you know, stealing functions, which which vary from, from malware to malware. And then exfiltrates that data off to a place that the attacker can access it and, and, and use it for a variety of purposes. Typically, we're talking fraud, some kind of monetization, but really it runs the gambit. Everything from ransomware to, you know, espionage type stuff to just good old data theft post on carding sites. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it is a, uh, it's a broad spectrum of, of nasty stuff. Can we go through the the info stealer life cycle? I mean, how does how does one typically find oneself uh, falling victim to this, and and what's the process by which it it does its business? You know, generally speaking, if we're talking about attack vectors, um, what we see, and and just to kind of clarify, when I talk about you know observation stuff like that, we're my my insight into this comes mainly from the post exfiltration. So we're looking at the data that's actually stolen by these uh, info stealers, not necessarily looking at you know doing uh, reverse engineering of any binaries. Um, although we, you know, we we have done that, I often find that it's more interesting 
or it can be more interesting to look at the proceeds of this uh, type of, of malware, especially for questions about you know what the intent is. But the, the general attack delivery, at least the most successful, tends to be some kind of uh, you know ruse. So we've seen everything from using some kind of like AdSense. Maybe they're going to post like a, an ad on Google describing something as a popular messaging app, say like Signal or Telegram, or you, you, know, you pick your app. And that directs you to a website that's carefully crafted to look like or be believable enough to be the, you know, the real thing. Um, but in fact, what you get is a, is a Redline or Raccoon or another info sealer. That tends to be common. It also tends to be fairly short-lived, right? Google's pretty good at catching those things. But if you think about it, the amount of eyeballs on the internet these days, it doesn't, you know, an ad doesn't have to be live for too long for it to get quite a few clicks. Similarly, we also see, and this is, I guess, kind of a recent change, at least the past couple of years, we've seen this uh, spike up, um, but using things like compromised uh, YouTube channels. So, you know, hackers mm-hmm. will essentially take over someone's popular YouTube channel and then use that and its built-in fan base to spread an info stealer quite broadly. Um, but one of the biggest, you know, links between all of these, quite honestly, is uh, the use of, of social media and, you know, socially relevant things. So games, cracked software, all of that stuff tends to be, you know, kind of the the dealer's choice of these malware operators that are running these schemes. And how do you assess the technical sophistication of of these packages? Are are we talking about uh, sophisticated things or is this the entry level for folks who are out there developing malware? So that's actually a really good question, Dave. One of the really interesting things about info stealers is a lot of these operate as what we call malware as a service. So how I like to describe this is, you know, we're all we're all kind of familiar with sort of like managed software, right? So think about like, you know, Adobe Photoshop. You subscribe to a, a monthly subscription, maybe it's a yearly subscription. It gets you access to the software. You get support that comes with it. So if something goes wrong, you can contact Adobe. They'll help you out. You know, there's other things that, that are sort of packaged up in that one subscription deal. The analogy is basically the same for info stealers, uh, malware as a service info stealers. Uh, these these criminals, developers will will create this malware. They will you know publish it on criminal forums online, uh, and then market that to other criminals who typically pay either weekly or monthly um, subscription fees, and those can range anywhere from you know fifty dollars up to two hundred. I, I think the highest I've seen was like two fifty paid in, in crypto, obviously. Uh, but then, you know, that allows that user who might not be very sophisticated, uh, maybe they, they couldn't have created that malware on their own, but because they were able to pay that money to the person that did create it, now they're able to have this malware that they can deploy um, and then they can, you know, reap the proceeds from it. So it's almost like a distributed method of criminality. It doesn't, when we talk about sophistication, typically we're talking about like nation state actors and, and those are like the very sophisticated, but what's kind of crazy about the info stealers and the malware as a service model is it, it almost democratizes the sophistication, right? You don't necessarily need to be some kind of like elite hacker with all of these coding experience to be able to do a lot of damage because you can take something that was built by somebody else who does have those, you know, ex- that experience and those, and those, um, those skills and then craft your own relatively low sophistication ruse and still be able to victimize, you know, a massive amount of people. Help me understand what the the specific concern here is for the corporate cybersecurity professional. I mean, are are, are info stealers targeting individuals, and the the corporation uh, gets um, 
uh, infiltrated as a, as a side effect, or or are they targeting companies as well? Yeah. So I don't know who I don't know who said this quote uh, originally. So I'm probably going to steal it from somebody. But um, there's this mechanics quote. It, it goes something like. 90% of the problems in a car are between the driver's seat and the steering wheel, right? <laughs> I, I, think, I think you could apply that very easily to IT. In terms of like, you know, do these info stealers target companies? Um, I'm not going to say no. I'm, I'm sure there, you know, there are criminals out there that are definitely targeting specific companies, but oftentimes it really seems like more of a spray and pray methodology, Right. We're going to infect the maximum number of victims that we possibly can. And then in sorting through, you know, the proceeds of those infections, we'll find a gem. Um, and that gem might be, if you're an initial access broker, maybe it's, you know, some Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 company that you're going to be able to sell that access to a ransomware affiliate that, that, that can then, you know, infect that company or exfiltrate data and, and charge a ransom. It could be, you know, on the lower level, somebody that's interested in, in carding or identity theft, right? All they're looking for is, is things that they can sell to other criminals um, or even use themselves. Um, it, it could be even more simple than that. So the real big danger really in all of that is corporations are made up of individuals, right? So even if something isn't necessarily targeting you as a corporation by name, you know, your employees being human beings and being uh, online people are still part of that targeting pool. So if you have a situation where you have maybe unmanaged or undermanaged, or you have like bring your own device policies, basically anything that you know allows access to your environment that's not necessarily tightly controlled or monitored, you're kind of increasing your vulnerabilities to this kind of malware because those employees that are doing things maybe on their personal device could leak information that does connect back to your corporate infrastructure and then in turn could turn into a you know a significant event. What are your recommendations then? I mean, for folks to best protect themselves against this, what what sort of things should they be focused on? Yeah, so we just released a report that in part surveys a bunch of uh, security professionals uh, asking a lot of questions about how they you know, see info stealers, whether they're worried about them, what their security controls consist of. Um, alongside that, uh, my my team, my research team did some some our own research on the data, and we looked at what do we see in these in these logs, um, and kind of what what context can we provide to the greater the greater survey. And one of the things that was really interesting from that was we found uh, greater than one fifth of all of the info stealer logs. So these are logs, folders. You can think of them like folders containing a bunch of files that were stolen from a device. One fifth, so twenty percent of those logs had an installed antivirus appliance at the time of execution. So the easy thing would be to say, you know, make sure your security controls are very good. Make sure you have good antivirus, make sure it's well updated, make sure you have visibility of your networks, you know, you, you decrease bring your own device policies, you, you monitor things like MFA and you have good, um, you know, cookie revocation policies, all of those things that are great policies in general. None of that is infallible, right? Um, and, and I'm not saying don't do that stuff. Like, definitely <laughs> right, right. do all of that, please. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, as a, as a security practitioner, it's really good to do all of those things and still have a backup plan. And I would say that backup plan really is visibility. Um, and it's visibility beyond what we traditionally consider part of the, you know, sort of digital forensics instant response process. So we're hyper-focused on devices. We're really focused on networks and things like firewall logs and application logs and all these kinds of things. But 
With Infos dealers especially, we have this sort of wildcard variable at play that is everything that was taken from that device that we might not have a record of. You know, if you ask me like, hey, give me a list of all of the accounts that you have. I mean, I could probably construct like an 80% list, but I don't know all the accounts that I have, right? Right, um, right. Maybe, maybe that's just me. Maybe somebody else has a much better awareness of their online No, I, you know, I don't think it's just you. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's, I think, it's hard. I think we all, we, I think we all suffer from that. All those legacy accounts that just, they're, they're, you know, I, I sometimes call them zombie accounts, you know, because they just hang around and they refuse to die. That's good. Zombie, okay, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? There's, there's, I mean, we're so deeply invested in the internet that, you know, our online identity really has become our identity. You know, IRL has become just RL. Um, right. And I think, you know, that kind of situation, it becomes very difficult. So, you know, having that understanding, at least having that understanding, um, approaching an incident with, I'm going to look at this device. Obviously, I'm going to do a good instant response, uh, you know, forensic-centric instant response, but also what else could have been stolen? What types of, you know, session tokens could have been stolen? What are the, what, what are the validity periods of those? What kind of, you know, maybe there's API tokens. We're talking about like a developer or somebody that has access to that kind of, you know, internal systems. What, what other information could be on their intellectual property? A lot of stealers will actually steal files, you know, full fat files from a desktop or, you mm. know, documents folder. Um, so what was in those files? Is that intellectual property? Is it something that might be export controlled, right? There's all these other questions that we start asking. Um, and just, just having the, the knowledge and the foresight to ask those questions, I think is really half the battle. I know you and your colleagues there at SpyCloud, you, you have this notion of a post-infection remediation. I mean, is that, is that really what we're getting at here? Yeah. Yeah, basically. So, you know, post-infection remediation, again, with the names, you know, we're pretty simple people. Um, I think it's pretty, <laughs> pretty descriptive. Got to, got to break it down for people like me um, that used to work for the government, but it's basically that. Uh, do, do all the great instant response things that, you know, we've all learned from SANS or whoever else. <laughs> we've gone to all these classes and learned these things. Do those, but also, you know, consider outside of the device, especially as we start or not even start, right? This is well on its way. Like we're, we're very cloud focused now. We've got all these different appliances, we have third-party appliances, security appliances that are out there, SSOs. You know, our environment is no longer just a computer or even just a network, right? It, it's, mm. it's, our corporate environment is much larger now. So consider those things and, and understand things like if I have a cookie, an authentication cookie, and it's valid, and I also have some basic device information like your screen size and your OS type, some of that stuff, I can become you, right? It's not hard. There's, there's open source tools out there that allow me to essentially emulate your device and pass that cookie as if I was just hitting F12 and refreshing the page. Um, and so in that kind of a situation, you can have the best multi-factor authentication in the world. If I can do that, and maybe I can exit from, you know, I get a residential proxy and one of your neighbors down the street or even you specifically, right? Your own, your own router. I can look basically identical, um, and so it's very difficult to control for that. So PIR is basically, let's summarize all of that, bring ourselves, you know, expand your, your consciousness. It's like that, you know, big brain meme, right? Expand your consciousness beyond just this device and think about all the other pieces of information that we create either intentionally or unintentionally and are still out there in the environment that we need to control for. As you're out and about, you know, working with folks on this problem, to what degree are they self-aware? I mean, uh, to, 
are people um, accurate and uh, up to date on the reality of their vulnerability to this? Or people whistling past the graveyard? I like that, whistling past the graveyard. I, I think... It's security. Uh, I'll speak for myself. I have a I have a tendency to be overly pessimistic. We we have an amazing amount of uh, experience and and knowledge, and you know, there is a lot of awareness. Um, now, is that enough? I don't know the answer to that question necessarily. Um, I think you know, going back to the the, the survey that we did, we had a lot of respondents say that they were concerned about this and that they're, you know, they're, they're at least cognizant. Um, I think one of the statistics was like 98%, I want to say, they would want better visibility into at-risk appliances. So that tells me that people are at least aware of what they don't know, you know, knowledgeable that they, they need to close that gap as much as possible. But when you get into the specifics, especially about InfoStealer malware, because it is very niche, right? This is something that not everybody has dedicated their life to this like I have. I don't recommend that. Um, in fact, <laughs> you should have a hobby. But, you know, <laughs> something that, you know, specific, it's that is much more niche. And, and so that's why I see like what I like doing is what you're offering me today, a platform to come on and, and talk about this because I'm not saying, you know, you're going to listen to this podcast and become an expert on InfoStealers. But hopefully some of the things that I've said have hit a nerve. And, and maybe if you were part of that 98% that said, yeah, we want to know more, maybe one of these things that I said has kind of keyed into that and given you a, a question to ask or something to, a bit of information to go after. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I would say in terms of like general knowledge and, and how do we spread the message? I think it's just kind of being repetitive and saying the same things and highlighting what I see and some of my peers see as significant vulnerabilities and things that, that are precursors, things like ransomware, mm. and then raising the visibility kind of writ large. We'd like to thank Rick Doden, the CISO for Healthcare Enterprises and Centene, and Trevor Hilligos, the Director of Security Research at SpyCloud, for helping us get our arms around the idea of post-infection remediation. And we'd like to thank SpyCloud for sponsoring the show. This has been a production of the CyberWire and N2K, and we feel privileged that podcasts like CyberWireX are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Eidman. Our sound engineer is Trey Hester. And on behalf of my colleague, Dave Bittner, this is Rick Howard signing off. Thanks for listening. <laughs>